From making gods in our own image to putting God in a box that we've fashioned, we always want to limit God. As we'll see today, there is no one like God, and in that truth is real comfort. Join us. So in your own mind, you decide that God is going to be X, Y, and Z. You'll put him in a box. You'll say that God can do this, this, and this, but not this or this. Uh, Question, is that a God that you can really count on when you desperately need God? Welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. We're in our series, No One Like God, and it's there that we find this amazing truth that God can't be put in a box. He's far greater than we could ever imagine. But in that truth, we find real comfort. For the details, here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's program. Moses was 40 years old when he left Egypt. Think about this. And for the next 40 years, this talented, highly educated man on the backside of the desert, that's where he lives. Working as a shepherd. I mean, he must have walked around each day kicking the sand going, man, I am a failure. What is going on here? And at the end of that time, when he was 80 years old, he's 80. God sent him to Egypt. By the way, you're going to go back and you're going to tell him, let my people go. Now that you're well done, you've been toasting out there in the desert. I mean, I feel for Moses. You know, I still remember the day when we... We knew God was calling us down to the desert, down to the Coachella Valley from the East Bay. We lived in Milpitas at the time. And it was in August when we first went down there. We were going down there for a wedding. The pastor's son was getting married. I'm kind of looking forward to it. You know, it'll be a wedding. It'll be nice. And the pastor said, oh, by the way, while you're down here, I want you to do an interview with the, the elders and see if, you know, you want to move down and, and become the youth pastor down there at Calvary Chapel, Indio it was. And I thought, well, okay. And a lot of things in my head just said, I don't know if this is good, bad, whatever. I was working in between churches at a fast frame at the time. I'd been there for several years making picture frames, which I enjoyed, but that wasn't what God called me to do. So we end up down there in August. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Coachella Valley in August, but if you, if you haven't, don't go there. <laughs> Trust me, do not go there. This is miserable. I mean, it's hot. I mean, I'm talking 100 plus, 110, 115, 120, and it's humid. It's not dry heat then. It's dry heat most of the time, but not in August and September, man. It's got this humidity, and you see these thunderheads hanging up over Hammett there in the, in the foothills. But that, it never rains. It's like, wow, this is the rain. Never, com- never comes, never rains there during this time. It's just hot and humid. I mean, you, you, know, you, you get up in the morning, and you're sweating, and you go to the bed at night, and you're sweating. You're turning the AC on. You're still sweating. It's horrible. And to make matters worse, beloved, I moved down there with a dated little Hyundai that I bought over in Fremont, actually. And I remember it was on the showroom floor when I bought it. It was like the feature little car. It had a sunroof and everything. And the the dealer said, would you like, yeah, I'll take that one. Would you want to drive it? No, I'll just take it. That's fine. I got to get out of here. I got church tonight. Deliver it to my house. Sign the papers and I'm out of there. And, you know, being in the East Bay, you don't really need it much, but it didn't have any AC. Trust me, we needed AC in the desert, beloved. I mean, I remember Sunday mornings getting up and, and we're just, you know, we're inside the house. It's nice and cool. And, you know, I couldn't go start the car to cool it off because it had no AC. 
So I pulled out of the garage, put the windows down, hopefully, you know, get some air moving in the car a little bit. And I remember we'd, we'd run to the car. We'd get in the car. And, and Crystal, Ambika, and I would sit in the car. I'd back up, and we would not talk to each other because sweat just starts pouring down. And by the time we got to church, man, we're soaked. It's just miserable. It's just a miserable experience. And I, I feel for Moses being down there. You know, I didn't golf. I didn't like to golf. And, you know, in August, it's horrible because they take all the golf courses right down to the dirt. And, and it's just a miserable place to be. I used to pick guys up at the airport. And they say, yeah, we got a great deal with that. I say, you got a great deal, all right. Wait till you get out there and try to golf and this stuff, man. It's not going to be fun. But he was there for 40 years. I mean, you think that would be a wasted time. But you know what? It wasn't. God's decrees, God's ways are unsearchable. His paths are inscrutable. Thirdly, he talks about Israel. He says, what about God's dealing with Israel, especially during those wilderness years? Think about this. J.I. Packard says this. God guided Israel by means of a fiery, cloudy pillar that went before them in Exodus 13. Yet the way which he led them involved the nerve-shredding cliffhanger of the Red Sea crossing. Long days without water and meat in that terrible and great wilderness. The bloody battles with Amalek, Sihon, and Og. And we can understand, if not excuse, Israel's constant grumbling. I mean, wasn't there an easier way to do this, God? Why would you put these people, your chosen people, through all this? What was the point of all these battles, all these delays? If there was a purpose to this history, it's unsearchable. We don't know. Or he mentions David. Israel's great king. God had rejected Saul. You remember the story. David's predecessor and had sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David to be the next king. But what happens? Years go by in which David first served Saul. And then he was chased all over the place by Saul. Because Saul, Saul, David, as a rival and he wanted to snuff his life out basically. So David did not become king until after Saul's death, even though God let him know you're going to be the king when he was 33 years old. And even then he didn't become king over the whole country. He was king only in Hebron, Southern territories. He reigned there seven years. He did not become king over the entire land until he was 40. I mean, why would God do this? Whatever did God have in mind by allowing Saul to reign so long? particularly when he chose David because of his exceptional character, his leadership ability. Why was he waiting? We don't know. His ways are beyond our understanding. Or you think of somebody else in the New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul. I mean, you think about his conversion. I mean, it's definitely a picture of God's direct and effective intervention in somebody's life. I mean, that's what we expect God to be doing all the time. You look at the Apostle Paul, he was out murdering Christians, and wow, he's transformed on the road to Damascus. First, three years in the wilderness with no apparent accomplishments during that time, as long as you know, Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. Then there were years in Tarsus, his hometown. You know, it wasn't until his midlife that he's called to active missionary work. And even then, it's mostly in the lands of Asia Minor there. I mean, Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go where the action is. And eventually he did. But how did he arrive there? He arrived there as a prisoner. 
He spent most of the time in Rome in chains. And eventually he died there by Nero's order. I mean, here's how Paul described his missionary years. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have gone, often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I mean, here you have troubles, you have hardships, you have distresses, you have beatings, you have imprisonments, you have riots going on, sleepless nights. I mean, why does it have to be this hard, God? Why, why, does it, why can't we just have a you know, big tent and everybody gets saved? I mean, couldn't you have worked out some other way to deal with Paul other than causing all these problems upon him for his beatings and going hungry and shipwrecks? Or maybe it wasn't that God cared. Maybe God didn't care about Paul. Well, we know that's not true. We know that God cares, just like he cares for us. Yet why should God be planting his steps in history in this precise way? I don't know. I don't know. The last example is Jesus. I mean, no individual in all of history had the hand of God upon him like Jesus did. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, he was God. God said this, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. J.I. Packard writes about the life of Christ. He says this, No human life has ever been so completely guided by God, and no human life has ever qualified so comprehensively for the description, a man of sorrows. Divine guidance set Jesus at a distance from his family, from his fellow townsmen. He brought him into conflict with all of the nation's leaders, religious and civil, and led finally to betrayal, arrest, and the cross. By every human standard of reckoning, the cross was a waste. A waste of a young life. A waste of a prophet's influence. A waste of a leader's potential. We know the secret of its meaning and achievement only from God's own statement. See, but we do know, we do know the meaning of the cross. We know that the most miserable of lives was actually the greatest of God's achievements. God accomplished the salvation for a lost race at the cross. That waste that the world would look at, that suffering, was actually the focal point of one of the highest achievements ever in all of history. And the crown awaits beyond the cross. You know, when you look at the life of Christ, and you look at the life of Paul, and you look at the life of these other individuals, and then you look at your own life, I'm sure it pales in comparison to the suffering you've gone through. But even so, with that being said, we're human. When we're in those times of suffering, it's easy to forget that God has a purpose, that God has a plan, that we're on a path that he has ordained. You could ask all these questions, whether it's about Moses or Israel or David 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says this, These things happen that we might not rely on ourselves, listen to this, but on God, who raises the dead. We have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, he says, Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? It says we fix our eyes not on what is seen, beloved, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Therefore, we do not lose heart. I mean, perhaps you're in the middle of your life and you're going, or at the end of your life, I don't know, and you're losing heart. Maybe you began your Christian life with confidence, but things didn't work out the way you thought they should. And as far as you can tell, you haven't become some great saint that everybody's looking up to. You're no great model of what it means to be a prayer warrior or anything else, a great evangelist. Maybe even your own personal relationships haven't gone as smoothly and well as you had hoped for. And much of your work, maybe even for the Lord, maybe as you serve in ministry, maybe you feel, you know what, is this worth it? I teach those little kids, are they even getting anything out of what I'm spending time with them, trying to teach them, trying to pour my life into them? I'm discipling this person, I'm teaching that Bible study, is it worth it? Well, I have one message for you, do not lose heart. Because God knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows exactly what he's doing in you and through you. You can't search out these decrees. You can't search out his judgments. You can't perceive the path that he has you on and where he's leading you to. That doesn't mean God doesn't know. He does. He's not confused. Fix your eyes on what is not seen. Fix your eyes on God. Trust in him. I like Paul, what he says, outwardly we're wasting away. You know, it's funny, you know... People come up sometimes and, you know, you ask, well, how are you doing? You know, it's no fun growing old. No fun growing old. Well, whoever said it was supposed to be? I mean, think about it. You're in a body that's, that's constantly wearing down. There's only so much time you have left. You know, it's not a real happy thing. I mean, it'd be great if you were born and then you just got better and better and stronger. And, but that's not what happens. Your eyes begin to fail, your hearing goes, you know, your bones begin to creak, you have issues with your blood pressure and all this other stuff and weight gain. Oh, you know, it's just one thing after another. It can become very discouraging. But you know what? That's what's seen. You don't live for what's seen. It doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves. We should strive to do that. We could all do a better job, I'm sure. But with that being said, you know what? We're all waste. (laughs) We're wasting away. I mean, that's what the Bible clearly says. So don't pretend. I mean, you know, some little pill is going to make you younger. That's not going to happen. You know, you can go to the doctor all day long and they can stretch your face as much as they want. But you know what? In the end, you're going to look old. Because that's what happens. I mean, I don't mean to make light of it, but sometimes we just forget these things. There's a hymn that was written. It says this. Still we will trust. 
Though earth may seem dark and dreary, and the heart faints beneath his chastening rod, though rough and steep our pathway, worn and weary, still we will trust in God. Our eyes see dimly, till by faith anointed, and our blind choosing brings us grief and pain. Through him alone, who hath our way appointed, we find our peace again. Choose for us, God, nor let our weak preferring cheat us of good thou hast for us designed. Choose for us, God, thy wisdom is unerring, and we are fools and blind. Let us press on in patient self-denial, accept the hardship, shrink not from the loss. Our portion lies beyond the hour of trial, our crown beyond the cross. See, that's exactly the Christian life. You know, we have a crown laid up for us in heaven. The only problem is it's not on this side of suffering. It's beyond the suffering. It's beyond the sickness. It's beyond the disappointment and the pain. It's beyond the cross. And that's when you stop and you look at who God is and the ways of God. And you begin to realize just how tiny, just how small we are. And you look at verse 34 here, and he talks about the mind of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one. You're not going to understand God. There's a lot of things that we're never, ever, ever going to understand about God. And see, it's important when we see that. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That's what Paul is saying. Why did God choose Israel only to reject Israel and then to save the Gentiles, to make Israel? Why did he do all this? Paul's saying, you know what? He has a purpose. He has a plan. You're not going to understand it. We know so little We're so small, even in this universe. Just go out and turn the lights out and sit out in a dark place at night and look up into the sky if there's no clouds and look at all the stars. It's amazing. I mean, as hard as you look and you just keep seeing more and more and more, the vastness of it is beyond our understanding. And yet God created all that. God is in control of all of that. And yet when it comes to our ways, our puny little ways here on earth, we throw our hands up and say, oh no, we don't know what's going to happen. Well, God does. God is perfectly in control. And that's what Job basically concludes. He says, you know what? The Lord's given, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't understand it. I don't know why I had to go through this. But you know what? God does, and that's good enough for me. So don't question the ways of God. Don't think that you're going to figure it all out and you're going to understand God fully. Because you're not. We can understand what God has given to us through the, the inspired scriptures and we should learn and desire to know more about him. But when you stop and you look at the God that saved us, there's no other God like him, beloved. And yet he took time to save us, to set his love upon us. That should cause us to be humble in his sight. And then at the end of verse 34 there in closing, he says, Or who has been his counselor? I think a lot of Christians could raise their hand to that one. Yeah, I've, been, I've tried to counsel God. 
You ever been praying for something and then you start telling God your prayer instead of, Lord, your will be done. All of a sudden you're telling God what to do. You're counseling God. Really. I mean, Paul says that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. The answer there is nobody has been. No, you can't. You can try to be a counselor to God, but boy, you're going to fail. You don't give him counsel. Who do you think you are? Well, what is the practical application here to all this? Well, first of all, there's no true wisdom except in God. If you want to understand true wisdom in your life, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, we can know God because God wants us to know Him. We can acquire wisdom from God because God wants to give us wisdom. But if you don't go to God, if you try to do this on your own, you're going to fail miserably. Oh, it may look real successful on the outside. I mean, you may have a nice car and a nice house and a good job and the nice little kids. And but you know what? You're a failure. You're a waste if you're not walking in the ways of the Lord. If you're not utilizing the wisdom that God is willing to give us. And then secondly, learn that even though you begin with God, you'll never fully understand God. You're never going to reach a point where, oh yeah, now I get it. I can completely understand You're never going to fully understand his ways. Because his ways are not our ways. It says they're beyond our finding out. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the purpose of the Lord that prevails. Now that doesn't mean you just go home and sit down in the the lazy boy and do absolutely nothing and say, Oh, well, you know, God's got it all worked out. I'm not going to do nothing. No. It says, many are the plans in a man's heart. So we should take some initiative, but we also need to be submissive to God's overruling our initiative at times. And then finally, we need to learn to trust in God and follow hard after him. And that's what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord, what? With all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Why? Because that's going to get you in trouble every time. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your paths, what? Straight. See, if you do that, your small little puny knowledge and your faulty wisdom and your misunderstanding will eventually work out for the glory of God because you're relying not on that but on him who loves and cares for you deeply. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you're a God that like no other. I mean, it's truly amazing. And next week as we close this out, that all this... Your greatness, our puniness, your awesomeness is all for your glory. And Lord, you've selected to leave us here on this earth for the purpose of that glory. And so, Lord, we pray today that we would have a fuller understanding of who you are and what you desire from us as your people. Lord, that when we leave these four walls, it's not about us. It's about you. It's about living each day for you setting our purpose and our motives and our fears aside and going out into this lost and dying world filled with sin, proclaiming the victorious message of forgiveness in Christ, victorious over sin and death. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that it's through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, that you will draw many to yourself. And Lord, if you choose to use one of us to do such a thing, Lord, Praise be to your name, but we should be willing to be used. And Father, I pray for any here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in you. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't fall into the trap of dressing up and 
like the religious leaders of Jesus day and thinking that prayer is some kind of fancy words that you say on a street corner. So everybody looks at you and says how religious you are. No, it, it could be as simple as Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, understanding your need for a savior and going to the only one who can save the Lord Jesus Christ, who's paid for your sin on the cross. If you cry out to him, Lord, be merciful, a sinner. He will save you. He will make you a new person in Christ. He will lift that burden that you're even now feeling. His ways are not burdensome. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.